Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 309, where we talk to Shane Shepard from USC Business School about bonds, inflation, and rising interest rates. The, the primary form of bonds that most people invest in are these nominal bonds and, and by and large, U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, there's also you know corporate bonds, right? So that's bonds which are issued not by the U.S. government, but by a corporation. And so those corporations typically uh, have a little bit of what's called credit risk associated with it, right? So that is, there's a chance that these corporations might not pay you back. Um, they, they could go bankrupt and then you won't get back your, your full amount that you've loaned to them. Um, and the, the greater amount of credit risk there is, the higher that yield you'll receive will be. So you'll earn a, a higher interest rate for a, a lower grade credit bond than you would for a bond from the U.S. government. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my keen co-host, Scott Trench. I don't know about Keem, but I'm definitely heavily invested in the discussion today, Mindy. <laughs> You're not invested at all in the discussion today. We're talking about bonds. <laughs> That's right. God and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story and every asset class, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate or fixed income, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, I love today's discussion with Shane Shepard, a professor at USC Business School. He reached out to me when I said that we need somebody to talk to about bonds, and he really delivered. We are talking about bonds today. We also bring up inflation and inst rising interest rates because they're kind of all connected. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, -A -A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. 
Shane Shepard is a full-time professor at USC Business School teaching investments and portfolio management. Bonds, rising interest rates, and inflation are the number one topics his students are asking about right now, and he reached out to offer his expertise and help us understand what's going on and what may be about to go on in the economy. Shane, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. I am super excited to talk to you and thank you for reaching out because I am on record as saying I don't like bonds. I am too young for bonds, even though I'm going to be 50 this year. I don't like them because they haven't in the last 20 years really performed very well. They haven't given a lot off. So all of a sudden, I-bonds are all the rage. Everybody's talking about them and how they're yielding 9.62% the last I heard. I love 9% yields on something so safe. Let's talk about I-bonds for a minute. What are they? Why are they paying so much? Should everybody drop everything and just go out and buy a ton of them right now? Yeah, so I-bonds are a great topic, um, and they're certainly very attractive in today's market. Um, to, to start talking with them, we need to really understand the difference between a real return and a nominal return. So if they're giving us you know, a 9.2% yield right now, that really is the nominal return, right? That is kind of what is your return <clears throat> in terms of, of actual dollars you'll receive. Um, and that's what most people are used to thinking about. Um, when we look at what they are in terms of a real return, it's actually zero, right? And so, uh, which is which is on one hand, a lot better than what you can get from other bonds. And that's why they're so compelling and exciting right now. But the way an I-bond will actually work is it'll give you a stated real return. And if you bought one right now today, that stated real return is, is 0%. And then on top of that, they'll pay you whatever the going inflation rate is. So they're a very natural and effective inflation hedge. Um, so I, if, if I bought an I-bond, uh, which I have. Can you introduce the concept of real return? Yeah, sure. Um, so your, your real return is your return after subtracting off inflation. So in other words, if I earned, you know, let's say 6% on the stock market, but inflation was at 9%, uh, my real return is negative 3%. That is, I've, I've lost 3% in purchasing power. Uh, my dollars don't go as far because of inflation. And so real return is, for most people, it's an uh, important concept because that gets at what the uh, growth in your purchasing power is. And so I-bonds are a way that we can protect our purchasing power um, in terms of, of in ensuring a 0% real return. So what you'll earn with an I-bond is a 0% real return plus whatever the inflation rate is. And so you'll earn, you know, right now, if inflation is 9%, then I-bonds are going to pay you 9%. If inflation drops down to 6% next year, those I-bonds will pay you 6%. Um, if inflation declines back to a normal steady state of 2%, those I-bonds will quite quickly start paying you 2%. So the actual interest you earn on those I-bonds will go up or down with inflation, um, but your real return is always going to be sitting there at zero. So in, in other words, what you're really doing with an I-bond is ensuring your purchasing power um, and, and not, uh, not earning a real return. Your real return is just zero. Your nominal return will be whatever the inflation rate is. So when people say that they're really excited about this, they're excited about getting a 0% real return. Yeah. Um, because they think everything else is terrible, right? That, that's essentially what you're saying if, you, if you're really excited about I-bonds, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. But it's actually not a bad thing to be excited about because it's much better than the alternative. You know, if you look around mm -hmm. at the competition, um, one one natural point of comparison is what's called TIPS, right? So Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Uh, and those are very similar to I-bonds, but they're actually traded on, on the exchanges. So you could 
buy them on on the open market. Um, and the real yield you get on those is about minus one percent, depending on what what maturity you're looking at. Um, but you're basically paying money. You're 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 accepting a negative real return in order to get that inflation protection. So I bonds are a great way to get that inflation protection without paying a cost. So if investors are concerned with inflation, then investing in I bonds is a very effective way to actually hedge out that inflation risk without paying any kind of cost. How, mechanically, how do I go about investing in I bonds? How much can I invest in I bonds? Yeah, and so that's that's exactly why this disparity exists because the investment amount that you can put into them is is severely restricted. So an individual can put in up to ten thousand uh, dollars per year into I bonds, um, and so the the Treasury has capped the amount at that. Um, you buy them uh, through Treasury Direct. So you actually need to go to the Treasury Direct website um, and create an account with the U.S. Treasury. And then you can purchase them through your account directly there. Um, now, the, the upshot is large institutional investors can't effectively invest in those I-bonds, right? Because that $10,000 limit is way too small for them to care about. So that gap between you know that negative 1% real yield that a tips bond where institutional investors are quite active um, gives you and the 0% uh, real return that you get from an I-bond, um, that exists because institutions can't invest in I-bonds. It's because of that $10,000 cap that individuals are able to purchase them at what is a pretty attractive price compared to what the alternative would be. Great. So if I'm an individual and I'm really worried about inflation and really don't like any of the other alternatives, the I-bonds are a great way to protect against inflation um, during inflationary times. Let me ask you this, though. What happens in a deflationary environment to I-bond yields? Yeah, so that's another nice feature of them is that that real yield won't go below zero. So if it's a deflationary environment, you'll earn a 0% real yield um, and then your purchasing power actually grows because with deflation, the cost of goods gets cheaper. So you're able to- You earn a percent, 0% nominal yield or- 0% real yield is, is what the I-bonds will give you if you buy them today. But in a deflationary environment, it would be flat. It, would, it wouldn't- Yes, it would, okay, right, yeah. correct. Oh, okay. Exactly. I'm, I'm making sure I understand. Okay, great. So 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 what what, what is, yeah, who, who's the ideal person to invest in these types of I-bonds? Who, who should they be using them? So it, who should care about this is people who are really concerned with and hurt by inflation, right? And so if you're an older retiree who doesn't have um, kind of future income coming from, from work uh, and you, you're living off your investment portfolio, uh, inflation is a really big risk for you, right? And so you might want to put a, a considerable amount or as much as you could into I-bonds in order to earn that inflation protection um, or other inflation hedging assets, right, of, of which you know, real estate, for example, is a prime candidate. Um, people who wouldn't necessarily want to invest in these um, is, I, I tell this to my, my students all the time, um, you know, people that have a lot of future human capital, right? So that is the, the assets that my students have as they graduate, the largest asset they have is their human capital, that is their future labor income. And that has a lot of natural inflation protection with it, right? That is, as they go out in the workplace and, and grow and get promoted and, and start earning money, you know, their wages will rise along with inflation. So they should be much less concerned about inflation and, and less concerned about, you know, inflation protection. Um, people on the other side of the spectrum, on the other hand, are the type who really should be looking for these opportunities to get as much inflation protection to the portfolios as they could. Yeah, I love it. In the inflationary environment, just keep working um, and let your wages go up. <laughs> if you're young, that's here. great. Yeah. <laughs> if you're retired, maybe not so much. Yes. And it's not always your choice to continue working, Scott. Absolutely with that. Okay, so I-bonds are currently yielding 9.62%. 
they how long will that 9.62% stay there? Do they is it reset every month or week or like how does how does that work? So it's every 6 months. So they'll pay out a uh, a coupon payment every 6 months depending upon what inflation has been over the last 6 months. So you'll receive that payment and it'll get adjusted with the inflation rate. Um, and so if if we're sort of at peak inflation right now, which you know may or may not be the case, that seems to be a point of view people are, are talking about, um, then that 9.6% would be the highest that you would get from I-bonds. And as inflation declines, you'll get less than that six months from now and, and a little less six months later. Um, if inflation continues to go up, if inflation went up to 12 or 15%, then You'll earn that right, you know, within the next six months. So let let let's let's talk about this. Though. We have we have I bonds as I think a a tool in your portfolio. It could be really interesting to somebody who's looking for um, not it's not even really a guaranteed return, but a, a high yield on a fairly safe investment, at least in the short run. It could def- it will definitely change uh, with inflation over time. Um, and the real yield is zero. So you know you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're treading water, keeping pace with inflation. You're not beating inflation, which I think is the goal of an investor, uh, especially a younger investor, is to beat inflation to some degree over a long period of time. Um, but but let's, let's contrast that to overall the overall bond, uh, other types of bond investing and how we think about that as a tool in the portfolio. Yeah, that's, that's great. So and there's a lot of different kinds of bonds out there that you could purchase. Um, and you know, probably the most common one we think of is U.S. Treasury bonds. That's a, a large portion of the market. If you're an investor and you hold a, a fixed income ETF, you know, like the, the BND ETF from Vanguard or AGG, for example, are two of the more popular ones, um, you're buying primarily Treasury bonds. And those, those are you know, nominal Treasury bonds. Um, and so that will give you a, a collection of bonds which are issued by the U.S. government at various maturities. So when you think about what what a bond is, you know, essentially a bond is a a loan, right? And so it's a securitized loan. And so that's an agreement from one party to to pay a fixed rate of interest to another party for borrowing money. Um, And so, you know, the government has agreed to borrow your money for a set period of time, you know, in a short-term bond, it may be three months or or six months or a year, uh, or it could be a long period of time. It could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So there's that fixed you know, time period associated with this bond, um, there'll be a interest rate associated with it. And so if you want to loan your the, the U.S. government money for one year, they'll pay you, you know, roughly 1% today. Um, if you want to loan it to them for 10 years, you'll earn 3%. Uh, and you'll earn that fixed rate of interest every single year. And so that's why bonds are sometimes called fixed income. You earn that, that fixed payment. Um, so the... Uh, the, the primary form of bonds that most people invest in are these nominal bonds and, and by and large, U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, there's also you know corporate bonds, right? So that's bonds which are issued not by the U.S. government, but by a corporation. And so those corporations typically uh, have a little bit of what's called credit risk associated with it, right? So that is, there's a chance that these corporations might not pay you back. Um, they, they could go bankrupt, and then you won't get back your, your full amount that you've loaned to them. Um, and the, the greater amount of credit risk there is, the higher that yield you'll receive will be. So you'll earn a, a higher interest rate for a, a lower grade credit bond than you would for a, a bond from the U.S. government. Um, so as investors think about it, looking at what to where, where to allocate to bonds, um, really what you want to do is compare, you know, the, the big question is, what is that yield that I'm earning? 
that is you know, what's my return going to be and and really how does that compare to the inflation rate is a great question right so purchasing a u.s treasury bond you know a, a nominal bond at even three percent today with an inflation rate of eight percent nine percent is definitely not a good deal right that that implies a, a quite significantly negative real yield where the income you earn from the bond is, is not keeping up with inflation. So that, that really is a situation to avoid. Um, and the, the yields you're getting on bonds today in that standpoint aren't particularly compelling. Um, I do think that situation hopefully is, is improving, right? So while bonds have not been attractive for the last you know, couple of years, I think uh, if interest rates are coming up, you know, which they are. The Federal Reserve is meeting as we record this, you know, today and tomorrow to talk about the direction of future interest rates. Um, as those interest rates come up, and hopefully as inflation comes down, that uh, that yield situation can can rectify itself. So, you know, bonds uh, don't have a um, compelling return in an environment where inflation is significantly higher than those yields. Um, if we return to a more normal economic environment where they offer you a, a positive real yield. Uh, with a yield higher than inflation, then there are benefits to holding bonds in your portfolio. Who should be holding bonds in their portfolio? Um, I'm going to be 50 this year, and I hold zero bonds in my portfolio because they don't pay very much. And I really like a higher return than 0% or negative percent. I really don't like the negative percent. Um, and you know, you just said they haven't been attractive for a while. I'm starting to hear a lot more people talking about them. Why are people looking to them now? Because you just said they're still not that great of a return. They kind of sound like they're still a negative return, except for the I bond, which you can only have $10,000 of. So that's, I mean, if you have a $10,000 portfolio, that's a really awesome return right now. But if you have you know, a million dollar portfolio. I hate to be so blasé, but what is $10,000 on a million dollar portfolio? That's not really moving the needle very much. Do you know what I mean? So why are people starting to look at these now? Um, so I, I think, first of all, with, with the I-bonds, you know, it is $10,000 that's per individual. So uh, like my wife and I both put $10,000 in. And so we're, you know, steadily accumulating a, a position bit by bit. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can start acquiring it over time. Um, uh, so nominal bonds um, are looking at becoming more attractive, assuming that, you know, these, these interest rates go up. So we've had a long period since 2008, really, where nominal bonds had a, a very low yield, right? So it was, you know, on the short end of the curve, we were pretty close to zero for much of the period between 2008 and, and 2020. They rose briefly um, in 2018 uh, up to you know about two percent, but then they've you know, were cut down to zero uh, once once COVID came. So um, you know, but even if we have a two percent yield on a bond and inflation is running at two percent, you know that's not particularly compelling. So you, you should ask yourself, kind of, why do I want to hold bonds in my portfolio? And I'd say really there's two primary reasons. Okay, so the first one is for income. Right. That is, we have steady fixed income. Um, and traditionally, a lot of retirees would hold bonds in their portfolios. Uh, you know, the the old advice is your fixed income percentage. You, know, you should look at um, com compared to your age. Right. So or your equity percentage should be 100 minus your age, I guess. So as you get older, you should add more fixed income into your portfolio. Um, and so retirees could have that steady fixed income and live off those bond coupons. They would know exactly what it is. It would match up to their expenses. 
Um, now that gets considerably less compelling as interest rates decline and, and are so low and you're not earning a very large yield on there. Um, but the other reason to hold bonds in your portfolio is really for a diversification purpose. Right. So that's something we talk a lot about in finance is the importance of diversification. And in particular, you know, how will your portfolio hold up um, as we enter into, let's say, an economic recession where the stock market may decline? And that, you know, that, that's kind of where we are today. If you look at the return on the S&P 500 uh, throughout 2022 so far, it's down about 15 percent. Um, well, the idea is if that continues to go down and the, the economy does enter into a recession, um, the the bond market should hold up much better, and so bonds typically are a good hedging property against recession risk. So in an economic recession, bonds will gain in value. Let's talk about that from a, how how bonds gain or rise or fall in equity value, bond equity value. Can you walk us through how that correlates um, with interest rates or in recessions, depressions, and and bull economies? Yeah, sure. So so it's best I think viewed through the lens of an opportunity cost. Right. So right now you could buy a, a 10 year treasury at, at 3%. Right. And, you know, that may not sound so good. Um, but if we enter into a recession and the Fed decides, whoops, you know, inflation is no longer a concern. We, we want to try and you know, reduce the, the cost of capital and get people back to work. They may cut interest rates. And if a 10 year treasury all of a sudden yields, you know, 1% or, or like it was in March 2020, the 10 year yield got down to 0.6%. Um, now, all of a sudden, having that 3% yield on your 10-year treasury is actually a really attractive alternative, right? That's that's a nice uh, yield that you have that's not available in, in the market once we hit that recessionary environment. So people are willing to pay a large premium for a bond that's earning 3% instead of the, the current bonds that would earn only 0.6%. And so that results in a large price appreciation to your bond. And so this is you know the, the what you often hear, so bond yields... Um, or bond prices rise as yields go down, right? So in that environment, as, as the prevailing yield goes from 3% down to 0.6%, bond prices are going to go up significantly. And so that uh, that action of cutting interest rates as we enter an economic recession, the stock market typically you know, will be down significantly and fixed income will rise, and that will offset the losses to your portfolio. So you get more stability across your portfolio. Um, the flip side there, of course, is true as well. You know, if we lock in a 3% interest rate on a 10-year U.S. Treasury today and inflation continues to run high and, and the Federal Reserve raises rates even further and we see inflation or interest rates at 6%, all of a sudden that 3% payment on your 10-year Treasury is not all that attractive uh, and the price on that investment you made will fall. And so you'll end up with a, a capital loss on your, your portfolio from that bond exposure. Okay, I have a question about the 10-year treasury, what you just said, because I'm confused. The I-bond resets every six months. If I buy, what I'm understanding you to say is if I buy a 10-year treasury that has a 3% yield, then I get that 3% yield for 10 years? Is that what the 10-year treasury means? And it doesn't matter what interest rates do. Yeah, that's correct. So look at it like this. If I lock in a 10-year treasury with a 3% payment, and you know, for a ten thousand dollar bond, I'll earn three hundred dollars a year on that. I'm, I'm guaranteed that three hundred dollars a year. I'm going to get that each and every year, right? So that payment is is fixed and certain. Now the question is, what's the the relative worth of that payment, right? So number one, kind of where is inflation? What's the purchasing power of that fixed three hundred dollar payment I get? Um, and then number two is the opportunity cost. That is, you know, could I do better if I could take my money out of that? 3% 10 year bond and reinvest in a 6% 10 year bond um, I could you know shift my my 
um, portfolio to getting a $600 monthly payment. So clearly that's better. Um, and that reduces the value of that you know, fixed 10-year bond if I were to buy or sell that in the market prior to the 10-year period of maturity being up. So I have a question here about um, long-term yields and thinking about this um, as a lifelong investor, right? So if you if you plot bond interest yields, bond, bond interest rates or yields over the last 100 years and you zoom into the last 40 years, you're going to see that interest rates peaked in the late 70s and early 80s. And they've really been on a long downward trajectory um, until 2020, right? 2021, um, last year, that when, when they were really at their lowest um, ever, right? Or, or, or approaching that. And my worry, my fear is that those yields are likely to increase over the next 30, 40, 50 years on average relative to where they are today. And that because of that, um, any bond yields that I I like if I were to lend money today, I could be lending more interest later and the equity value of those yields will actually decline. And that currently with yields on average lower than inflation, um, this is not a place for me to, to park my money. Um, and so that's why I have zero bonds in my personal portfolio. But again, I'm not an expert on this. How do you think about um, that particular framework with a, with a long-term zoomed out lens? Yeah, no, I, I think your view is very valid, right? And that closely matches kind of how I manage my own portfolio as well with a relatively small exposure to fixed income today. Um, so the, I think the best way to think about it is you're forecasting that interest rates potentially could rise going forwards. And that is a risk. Um, that's certainly true. Uh, a lot of economic research has shown that the yield that you'll earn on, let's say, a 10-year bond is pretty well approximated by the inflation rate plus real economic growth. Right. So why were bonds yielding, you know, 10 or 12 percent back in the early 80s? Well, it's number one, we had very high inflation. And number two, we had stronger economic growth. And we've seen both of those factors decline you know, ever since. And that's led to that long term downtrend in, in yields that you talked about. So, you know, we're we're at the point today where we've got, you know, I guess kind of back up a couple years when we still had fairly low inflation, one and a half percent. And we had slower economic growth of about, you know, one, one and a half percent. And so that that implies a sort of roughly 3% yield on, on your fixed income. Um, so you could look at that just as your guideline, right? If I'm going to invest in fixed income, you know, I'll currently today, you know, earn that. And so the the bond market is telling you, you know, essentially we're forecasting, you know, if it's a 3% 10-year treasury yield, you know, the bond market is forecasting uh, relatively low inflation over the next 10 years um, and, you know, still a continuation of relatively slow economic growth, which is what, you know, the U.S. has been experienced over the last, 15 years. So the the idea is, uh, if, if you look at the information in the bond market, um, it's not too concerned about inflation, right? It's much less concerned about inflation than the average person. Um, we can look at various signals from you know, people's willingness to pay for these these fixed income yields. And you know the, 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 the information tells us that the bond market expectation for inflation is, is maybe two and a half to three percent over the next 10 years. So certainly you know high today, but declining and will settle in on a long-term average of you know maybe slightly higher than we've been, but you know much much lower. If that is the case, then you know kind of a, a ten-year treasury at three percent you know probably isn't a bad deal um, if inflation settles back down to that. Um, you know that said, I, I think you're not earning a very compelling real return from most fixed income options right now. Um, I think the main purpose for holding fixed income in your portfolio is really to stabilize the value of portfolio as we go through. You know, the ups and downs in the economic cycle. And so holding fixed income more as that hedge against a recession 
um, is is probably the best use for that and best allocation. Um, and you know, my advice would be keep an eye on interest rates. And you know, if they do come up to a point where you're earning a more attractive real yield, you know, then that's a time to consider putting allocation in. Um, you know, and, and also you don't need to look at you know, I, I'm kind of using this 10-year government treasury as, as an example, and, and that's a you know pretty well-regarded benchmark. Um, but you can invest in short maturity securities, right? So if you wanted to invest in a even a three-year note today, you'll earn something close to three percent. Um, you could also invest in credit bonds, right? So you don't have to invest in bonds coming from the U.S. government. Uh, you can pick up another you know, percent or depending on how much credit risk you want to take, you know, another percent or more by loaning to corporations instead of to the U.S. government. Um, and so you could you know, easily get your yield higher than that even. You could, you could earn yourself a positive real yield from other types of bonds. Um, and, you know, so that's that's a reasonable way to to put your allocation in place. Um, and, and really, I think the main point for buying bonds today is, is that, Stability, right? To uh, to offset that, not so much for for the income and for a long term yield, um, but that situation you know may change if if inflation comes down and interest rates rise. Love it, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like it sounds like um, your your high level approach is it's not really that attractive of of, a, of an investment vehicle right now, and it's probably a, l- a smaller part of your portfolio for for most long term investors. But it is it does have a place to to a certain degree, and and there's lots of stability. Uh, reasons reasons to do it um is that is that is that about right yeah that, that's that's correct and you know i again i don't hold a whole lot of bonds in my portfolio right now um and you know that that's exactly the reason why awesome when, when, I, when i um when i think about when i think about 2022 from an asset class perspective and, and we had this discussion we've had this discussion for the last six months um about about where do you put your money right i i, I can't hold in the bank account because i'm gonna lose money to inflation i'm gonna lose value to inflation which is sky high right now the stock market is down 15%. And I don't think, you know, lots of people are in shock about this, right? Because of the the high valuations and the rising interest rates, which impact both stocks and real estate, right? You think real estate with rising interest rates is going to be a challenge, right? Although maybe offset by the fact that you think inflation is going to spur higher rent growth um, to, to some degree. Um, you, you, you think Bitcoin is, is you know, a hard place to put a huge amount of your assets if you're if you're not really comfortable with volatility, right? You know, putting parking it all in gold is is unattractive for. So so how do you think about the overall portfolio management at this point in time following the discussion we just had on bonds? Yeah, so it, it's a grim picture, right? And and sort of what you're asking for is is a, a magical security that will give you a much higher return than anything else out there in the market. Well, well let's try let's try the least bad security. What's least the bad least bad security. instead of instead of the magical one? What, where's the least bad place to put the money? Yeah. So the part of the trouble is they're they're all kind of bad right now, right? And that is, you know, if you think about it like this, as that um, interest rate on treasuries come down. You know, if if you could earn seven, eight percent on a treasury today, that'd actually be pretty good, right? Um, as that yield comes down, people start allocating money away from treasuries over into things like the stock market. Um, and what does that do? That drives up prices in the stock market, right? And so dividend yields on the stocks come down, valuation ratios on the stocks go up. So stocks become a less compelling alternative. They start allocating more money into things like private equity, right? Or you know, real estate as an alternative asset. So all of these things start to get this, you know, what's termed asset price inflation, right? And that's been a result of kind of the Fed policy over the last 15 years of, of keeping interest rates extremely low. Um, they're trying to do that in order to, to push people out on that risk curve, to push people out of fixed income and into these other asset classes. And as, as that's occurred, we've seen 
um, the, the returns, the prospective returns on all these other asset classes uh, also fall in tandem, right? So I think this is exactly sort of a, a direct result of the, the low interest rate policy that we've seen from the Federal Reserve. Um, and, you know, investors are right to think that, well, there's not really that many great places to put my money, you know, kind of where is the best place? You know, I, I think the stock market um, should do okay in the long run. I, I'm concerned about valuations for sure. Um, one alternative is to move money out of the U.S. markets and into kind of other developed market countries. And so kind of diversify your, your equity portfolio. Um, you know, there's there's a documented thing called home bias where people within a particular country tend to invest the vast majority of their wealth in in the equity markets of their own home country. Um, and that's, you know, suboptimal. I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's much higher you, you can earn you know much higher dividend yield if you were to invest in the UK stock market or, you know, the, the German stock market, Japanese stock market. Um, so diversifying abroad overseas is actually a nice way to earn a little bit of a higher yield, diversify your exposures. Um, and and uh, diversify your equity risk. So that, that's kind of one point that I would encourage people to look at. Um, alternative assets are kind of what's been a, a, lar- a big solution for a lot of institutions. And so that's led to a lot of money flowing into things like private equity, um, private debt, uh, real estate. You know, this is the reason why we're seeing a lot, a lot of institutional players come in and start buying up houses and, and pushing up prices in the residential real estate market. It's because they don't like bonds. It's because they don't like stocks. It's because they don't like the other alternatives. And so the impact there is as interest rates come down, you know, the, the cap rate on real estate comes down uh, in tandem. And so you're seeing, you know, prices go up across the board. So, you know, real estate, I think, is still an attractive option. Um, prices certainly have skyrocketed. Uh, in large part, that's because real estate is one of the best inflation hedges out there. And so you're seeing a lot of people, institutions as well as individuals, um, look at acquiring real estate in a way to protect their portfolios against future inflation. You know, I, th- I think that's certainly on the institutional side, um, a large part of the story behind what we've seen driving housing prices over the last couple of years. So real estate, real estate in other countries are the, the two to the places to potentially think about diversifying into as as part of a holistic portfolio approach is what I'm hearing there. I'd say that's where most people are under diversified, right? And so where they could look to incrementally move their portfolio. Um, now, certainly, probably your your listeners have a lot more real estate than the average person, but so so this is a great discussion on diversification, right? So if I am already a millionaire and have a one, $1.5, 2000000 million portfolio that I'm looking to spread across various asset classes. And this is a great discussion, but let's, let's put our, um, our, let's, let's take off our millionaire hat and let's put on the hat of somebody who is attempting to build their first hundred thousand dollars in wealth, right? They've just paid off their student, their, their debts, and they're on this journey to financial independence. And, you know, uh, if you diversify too much, in those early phases, you certainly protect your 50,000 bucks, but you also ensure that you go nowhere fast um, with that portfolio. So how how should someone in that situation think about investing? What, where's Is there a place to potentially think about getting aggressive um, for that maybe young and hungry investor who's just getting started right now? Yeah, good question. So diversification has, has also been called a regret maximization policy. You know, that it's no, <laughs> no matter what happens, you're, you're going to wish you did something different. Um, so it, it is, uh, you know, I think, a valuable <clears throat> framework, but you're also not going to get the best possible outcome through diversification, right? So I would say if you're a young investor, um, you're, you're happy taking on more risk. Um, you've got you know, potentially a lot of you know, future income coming in through your, your, your work, um, then taking on risk in your individual portfolio is, is the right thing to do. And so putting more money into equities, into 
fixed income or sorry into uh, the housing market um doing things where you can sort of you know add value like through you know some of the things you talk about around kind of increasing housing value um like that's a really uh, nice way to to increase the value of your portfolio um so certainly yeah younger younger listeners should be willing to take on more risk and allocate primarily to you know equity markets um and potentially you know, things with more attractive long-term upside like the real estate market um, fixed income allocation to a younger investor it should probably be pretty close to zero. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. 
BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Um, so I want to, I want to put in a little asterisk, asterisk next to your, they should be willing to take on more risk. Um, I would like to encourage people to do a lot of research before they invest in, uh, when I hear risk, I think stocks, individual stocks, as opposed to index funds, index funds are the darling of the personal finance community and the, you know, the early retirees. And, um, have you read set for, uh, not set for life. What's Jim Collins book? A simple path to wealth. I haven't. You know, it's on my list, though. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to read it soon. I hope it's. I mean, it's a great book for people who don't have. For people who want to set it and forget it, it's a great book to explain how the you know the index fund works. It's a great book in a lot of ways. I don't think that most people should be investing in individual stocks, even though I have invested in a lot of individual stocks. Um, my husband is the one who is doing most of the investing into the individual stocks. And it's because he is positively obsessed with tech stocks in general. He was a tech guy. He's been reading tech news since the late 90s. He like he wakes up and reads 50 different publications and all of their stories about Google and Facebook and Tesla and all these things all the time. He's entrenched in it. And for that reason, I feel comfortable when he says, hey, I want to invest in this company. I know he's done a thousand hours of research last week on this thing. And it's, you know, it's a good, I don't know, I, I can't say it's a good idea. It's a well-researched idea. And we have a higher than average probability of success, the highest possible probability of success because we have as much information as is publicly available. Um, but I also want to say that if you don't have the time, like, don't just get a hot stock tip from some guy at Jamba Juice saying, you know, oh, I heard that that ABC company is going to go public next week and they're going to be great. That's not the kind of investment that you should be doing. That's not the kind of risk that you should be taking. Just because that might pan out doesn't mean that every time you hear a hot stock tip at Starbucks, it's going to pan out. So I just want to give a little bit of context with that risk. Yes, you can take more risk, but you shouldn't be wildly investing, jumping in both feet without doing any sort of research and just hoping for the best because you're 20 and that's how it works. Yeah, no, that, that that's right. That's good advice. Um, you know, more risk, you know, I, I would say that means changing your asset allocation, right? So, you know, simple, low cost, passive ETFs is a great way for most people to invest. Um, and I think rule of thumb is keep your costs as low as possible. And that flows through directly through, through to your bottom line. So that's the best way to go about doing it. Um, and by taking on more risk, that just means allocating more towards, you know, higher volatility, higher return type of opportunities. Um, like, you know, a broad-based, uh, you know, U.S. 
a large cap ETF. Um, the, the vast majority of academic evidence shows that people who try and choose individual stocks um, by and large uh, earn lower returns. Um, you know, and, and it's not that they choose stocks poorly. And essentially, they, they just choose stocks which earn the average market return on average. <laughs> and what they end up doing is trading too frequently and paying fees and commissions. And so you know, their, their broker gets rich. Uh, the individual doesn't do any better, uh, but they pay higher costs. And so the more aggressively somebody trades, kind of the, the worse their portfolio tends to do. So let, let, let's think about this. You've got a, you got, we, let's say we, let's take a $1.5 million uh, fantasy portfolio. And let's use a couple of cases here. We'll probably have different mm-hmm. portfolios. But let's say I'm, I'm, I'm uh, about, I'm retirement age and I want this money to allow me to draw down $75,000 a year. Um, and I want it to be, you know, I want to feel good, sleep, uh, uh, sleep well at night. What do I, what do I invest in? Yeah. So if you really want that security, um, if you want to avoid drawdowns, um, you know, you, you need to have some fixed income in there, right? That's the ballast in your portfolio that'll offset kind of those drawdowns in the equity markets. Um, you know, and so it, it does depend upon kind of your your age and time horizon, right? And in terms of how much you, you need in there. Um, but, you know, still, I, I would say kind of given today's current yields um, and the, the outlook on the economy, if you were to be kind of 50-50 between equities and, and fixed income, you know, that might be a reasonable, I can sleep really well at night type of portfolio. I know I'll get income. I know that my, you know, my equities might experience drawdowns, but over the long run, I should still experience that growth. Um, and if you're looking at those as, as sort of your only two asset classes, you know, that's that's the reasonable approach. Um, and then if you wanted to add other things into there, like real estate or whatnot, you could just sort of in- increase exposure to those um, and reduce your your uh, equity fixed income split um, pro rata. Awesome. What, what about if you're um, 35, 40 and have that same $1.5 million portfolio and want to want it to grow long term, you know, want to have the best outcome of, of having a, a big pile at 65? What, what are you doing then? So it, it also depends upon um, what, you know, if, if you're continuing to work, right? So that is kind of your, your labor income is a big portion of this. I mean, for somebody who's younger, um, labor income is, is a larger part of their wealth, you know, unless they're planning on early retirement. And then you can sort of decide how many more years am I going to work and then how much of that labor income represents compared to the value of my portfolio. Um, so, but if somebody's willing to, you know, if they're 35 and they're willing to work until they're 65, um, then that labor income is really large. And so that's kind of a, a large offset. And so in that example, they could take on more risk with with the equity portfolio, right? And so if you still want some security, you know, you might push that to 80% equities, 20% fixed income. Um, and if you are willing to take on, you know, you, you could go even lower. I would say kind of in normal times, kind of 80-20 might be a reasonable split. Um, it is conditional upon yields, right? And so given how low yields are and how high inflation is right now, um, you know, you might want to, yeah, I, I want to shy away from encouraging people to try and time the markets, right? But um, now is the time when we're at kind of that inflection point. Um, you know, so it, it may be a time where sort of holding a little bit of cash uh, is not necessarily terrible. Um, you may have better opportunities going forwards. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, but, you know, in case of kind of certainly risk is high right now, right? There's a lot of elevated risk in the economy. There's a lot of elevated risk um, in the equity markets. Um, and that's sort of been played out over the last four months. Um, so it, it's in those times when risk is rising and we're, you know, seeing more volatility across what the future economy might look like. You know, that's a time when it, it might make sense to sort of 
you know, add in a little cash to hedge that exposure and, and have some some cash willing to to redeploy to um, better investment opportunities in the future. Okay, so you said a little cash. And just a few days ago, Bill Bangin, the father, the inventor of the 4% rule, wrote into the Wall Street Journal and shared his current portfolio allocation. Bill Bangin is older than I am. Um, but he said that his current portfolio allocation is 20% stocks, 10% bonds, and 70% cash. And far be it from me to question Bill Bengen. He is leaps and bounds smarter than me. He is leaps and bounds smarter than I ever will be. But Bill, I don't agree with the 70% cash because our inflationary period that we're in right now, his purchasing power is immediately being reduced every day that his money is sitting in cash. But he's so uncomfortable with the markets in retirement that he's violating his own rule. So the 4% rule said 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And I get that he's uncomfortable. He was uh you know, when we way back when COVID first happened, we had five retirees talk to us on episode 119. And the mad scientist, Brandon, uh, the mad scientist came on and said, I thought I was going to be able to weather any bounce in the markets. And as soon as the stocks dipped, I was freaking out. And I decided that that I needed to take a step back and write down my feelings and not make any rash decisions because that's the kind of person he is. But I, you know, so I think it's really helpful to realize to to hear somebody of Bill Bengen's stature, somebody of the mad scientist stature, understanding that that it's okay to kind of freak out when the markets are like this. But you know, I I would question the seventy percent cash. What What do you have to believe, Shane, in order to move seventy percent of your your personal portfolio into cash? What What would be the set of assumptions you have to work under for that to be a viable approach for you? Yeah, that's a great way to frame the question. Um, so it's a really aggressive bet, right? It's a really aggressive bet on on short term market timing. I'd say the number one thing that you would need to believe is that you have the ability to, um, to execute a future plan. Right, so that is, he could be absolutely right that seventy percent cash is is a good standing right now because we're going to see the markets collapse as we enter a recession and inflation is going to, you know, respond. Um, but people could follow that advice and still be worse off, right? Because what you need to know is when do I buy back in, right? What is my plan for buying back in? And you got to be willing to say, all right, well, the stock market just sold off another thirty percent. You know, am I going to buy now? You know, it sold off another forty percent. You know, when do I step in? And what if I'm wrong? What if the market goes up, right? And let's say that you know the the market recovers and the economy seems to do okay from here on out, and we're fifteen percent higher, you know, six months from now. Am I still going to be sitting in cash? Am I going to buy back into the market? At what point am I able to admit, you know, what I was wrong, um, and I need to go back and invest my cash into the equity markets? So that's really the the big part is I, I hear that sort of advice quite a lot. And, and people oftentimes, you know, are taking a, a view on the markets and, and they may be right. But to actually execute on that and to know when to step back in and to um, to be able to, you know, especially in, in the throes of a market downturn, like it's really difficult to step in and buy on the dip. People talk about it all the time. But, you know, who here was was buying more equities in March of 2020? You know, I'll tell you, I wasn't. Um, it's it's a hard thing to do. Scott's raising his hand. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing to do, right? I think that's where you come in and say, what's your plan, 
right? And, yeah. and, and so I think that that has to be the answer. So, hey, I've got the set of assumptions about the market. I think it's going, if, if I'm going to put, put my position 70% into cash, I agree with you. Inflation's got to stop or there's got to be deflation that I'm betting on because cash is better than the alternative in a deflationary environment or, or you know, than, than a lot of other, uh, uh, other things. I've got to believe that real estate prices are going to come down. I got to believe that mm-hmm. rents are going to come down. I got to believe that the stock market prices are going to come down. And I got to believe that uh, bond yield are going to increase, interest rates are going to rise, right? All of those, like that story has to largely be true or many aspects of it for me to move my position largely to cash, right? That's not my plan. My plan is I believe that stocks over a 50-year period are likely to accrete in value at some degrees. Sometimes they'll be very high valuations, sometimes they'll be very low valuations. But when I look back uh, as a, what of it, 80-year-old, 80, 80 81-year-old, 50 years from now, um, I will be like, great, I have more real and nominal wealth at this point in time because I invested in stocks than I do today. And so COVID in March 2020 does not bother me, right? And, and I was buying more during that period of time um, and just continuing to execute my plan of whatever my cash position gets over the level that I'm comfortable with, I sweep it and put it into the index fund or sweep it and put it into my real estate, my next real estate purchase fund, right? Um, and just continue that, you know, just keep buying long, long-term approach with that, right? That's my plan. So it's that, you know, that there it is with that. But I think you've got to believe, um, you got to believe some serious things are going to happen in order to move all to cash, what is likely millions and millions of dollars all to cash, um, and then I love your your point. Have a plan to then harvest it, and what you what you believe based on what you believe is going to happen. Yeah, and and having that that discipline to execute on the plan, and then to also you know kind of know when to shift. Right, that is if I'm wrong. I think that's that's the bigger case, right? Because people get very stubborn, and they say I'm moving all to cash, and I'm going to wait for the market to drop, and then the market doesn't drop, and it goes up, and then it doesn't drop, and it goes up, and so at some point you have to admit you know, I was wrong and I have to change my plan now. And so you want to think about that as well, not just what am I going to do and when will I buy when the market crashes? That part's easier, but kind of what if I'm wrong? When will I admit I was wrong and, and shift my decision? So you know, that's that's a big part of it too. You know, we, we had Bill Bingen on Bigger Pockets Money here on episode 153, if you want to go back and listen to that. And I remember asking him on that. I, I asked him the same question we asked earlier today. Um, we asked you earlier, just a few moments ago, um, of, you know, Hey, it looks like interest rates are likely to rise over the next 30, 40, 50 years, which is going to crush your bond equity in for that portion of your portfolio. If you believe that, right. Um, stock market valuations are at all time highs, right. Inflation looks like it's set to increase, right. All those things. What do you do with your funds at that point? And I'll have to go back and listen, but I remember him kind of going, I don't know, you know, with that. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, 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 it's kind of surprising to see that he's doing that, but it's also based on that reaction to our conversation that we had with him, um, maybe last year or the year before that was the, you know, that that's, I think that was uncertainty that everyone is feeling, including the, the pioneer thought leader in this space. I think that's right. You know, one thing that we see people do, um, is they tend to chase returns, right? And so, you know, that, that can be very dangerous. So, you know, when, when things like uh, the housing market is up 15, 20%, people tend to project that out into the future, right? And they think, oh, it's going to continue to appreciate it at that level. Um, when I remember uh, in 
2000 at the peak of the dot-com bubble, you know, surveys of investor expectations for, you know, future equity market returns um, were sitting in at, you know, 30, 40%. People just sort of imagined that was going to continue on forever. Um, so people, you know, tend to get excited by big returns. They tend to allocate towards those type of assets when they have big returns. Um, they tend to get fearful when, when markets crash. Um, and so that sort of market chasing behavior is, is really counterproductive, right? And so you're, you're much better off kind of having that discipline to, you know, systematically continue to invest, to um, view things as more favorable when prices are down and to kind of, you know, pause and, and be a little more trepidatious when asset prices are extremely high. Um, so, you know, that's, that's I think, a, a good general rule. Um, and if you're uncertain, you know, kind of we talked about where to invest uh, with fixed income. Um, one thing, you know, yes, if interest rates go up, uh, you will see bond values fall considerably and, and kind of that, that principle on your bond will decline. Um, but one one solution to that is, is just keep your maturity short, right? I mean, if you're buying short duration bonds, you know, you, you basically you lock up your money for a period of a year or two years and you can roll that over and reinvest. You know, you'll, you'll get your principal back, right? You'll get your principal back um, once they mature. Uh, and then you roll it over at a higher yield if interest rates go up. So one solution towards kind of fear of rising interest rates is just kind of dial back that duration, invest in shorter duration bonds, shorter duration credit instruments. Um, and then you can continually roll over and, and get that higher yield as as yields go up. No, but I think I think there is you do have to make an assumption at at the end of the day about the long term yields of the asset classes that you're investing in, right? Like that is that is foundational to this act of investing, right? And the answer is nobody knows what's going to happen over the next 50 years. Nobody knows what's going to happen over the next 10. No one knows what's going to happen over the next three. No one knows for sure what's going to happen over the next five, right? Um, somebody will be right. Um, but it's, you know, you, you, you wonder if that's a coin flip, right? Or if it's, if it's really skill that's able to do that over a long period of time, right? But I will say that, you know, in 2000, to your point, they were saying, oh, the returns are going to be 20, 30% for the stock market forever, right? And we know that that's crazy. But, you know, 2000 to 2021, we had, you know, a couple of big, big blips um, in that in that period. And the compound annual growth rate of the S&P 500 was 7.5% over even that period, which you can say maybe, maybe it may have not been the best period to invest in, right? So I think it's, I think it's a, you know, long term, you can make an assumption about the return on equities or the return on on bonds, right? The, the thing with bonds or fixed income that you can make an assumption about is you know what the nominal yield is going to be, right? And you don't know what it's going to be in equities, which, you know, which I think makes is, is really the art of this. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So, you know, you, you can look at valuations and, and do you want to think about how do I position my portfolio given kind of the current opportunity set today? And so, you know, we talk a lot about asset allocation. Most asset allocation advice you hear is pretty static, right? That is, you've got a single you know, best strategic asset allocation, maybe depend upon your, your age or demographics. Um, and in reality, it, it should also depend upon the current market conditions, right? So that is, as things get cheaper, you should want to put more into them, right? And as things get more expensive, you should, you know, try and sort of dial back that exposure. And so, you know, if you're asking kind of what's the, the long-term outlook, um, you know, nobody knows for sure, right? But what we do know is those valuation ratios are actually pretty important. So we could look at you know, price to earnings on on the equity markets, for example, and you could look at you know cap rates in, in the housing market as a valuation tool, and you know those those are good signals as to kind of the, the price you're paying per you know dollar of earnings or per you know unit of, of income or whatever it is, um, and so you know just on average, if if you follow a simple path of balanced allocation, diversified with kind of 
a bit of um, you know sort of investing where things are cheap and and not investing where things are expensive. Um, you know that that's a, a long term strategic plan. I think it's really easy to sit here and say, oh, you should just follow your plan, and when the stocks are on sale, you should buy more. But it's really hard to put that into practice. And I wanted to bring up Bill Bengen's current portfolio allocation because he's Bill Bengen, and even he is having a hard time sticking to the plan based on the current. I mean, there's a lot of things going on right now. I don't know if you heard this, but there's a war in Europe and you know we've got supply chain issues that aren't going to work themselves out anytime soon. And housing prices are through the roof everywhere, no pun intended. Um, so you know, there's a lot of things that are going on. I think it's it's really important to number one, even have a plan that you're trying to stick to. And I think a lot of people may not even have that plan in place. You know, I want to make the most money ever. Well, so does everybody, but you also want to do that in the safest way possible. So, you know, sitting down with yourself or with your partner and creating kind of this living document and investment plan. And, you know, what do I want in five years? I want you know, to have this kind of asset allocation, or I want to have this sort of stability, what sort of, you know, and, and looking at it in a bunch of different ways. Um, but then also right now in this, this, it it feels like a turning point. It feels like right now we're on the brink of a big change in the investment space. And, you know, write down your feelings. I thought that was a really great tip from Brandon Back on episode 119, he said, I'm not going to make any rash decisions right now. I'm going to write down what I'm feeling in the moment so that when it passes, because I know it will pass, when it passes, I can go back and see what I was feeling and make adjustments to my overall plan so that the next time this happens, because there will also be a next time, the next time this happens, I can learn from how I handled it last time and make a more holistic decision. Oh, okay, the market's down. I'm going to ride it out. I'm just not going to look at the markets for a while. Or I'm going to sell 10% of my things because they're down. Or I'm going to, you know, move things over into bonds or, you know, however you're going to handle it. It's not something you should make a, it's not a decision you should make at the spur of the moment based on things that are happening. Like, I just recorded an episode of the show yesterday with my husband because we were talking about money and I didn't know that the market was down 15% because I'm not investing for tomorrow morning. I'm investing for 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. So what it's doing today, I don't care about. I mean, I do care, but I don't like if, and, and I'm a worrier. I could really freak myself out if I watch the stock market all the time. So I choose not to watch the stock market all the time because, and I don't know how to say this without sounding so awful, but it doesn't affect me today. So I don't need to know what's going on today. I'm not going to make any changes today based on my long-term plans. Yeah, that, that, that's really good advice. You know, I'll, I'll refer to this. There's a study that looked at... Um, people who, who owned uh, or had money in a discount brokerage and, and kind of measured how frequently they logged into their accounts and then looked at their returns. And what they found is that those people who logged in most frequently had the worst returns and the less frequently logged into your account, the better your performance was, right? And so, you know, the message is, you know, number one is it's really you're trading more frequently, right? So, you know, don't trade, don't trade that frequently. Um, but don't, you don't even to look at your account that often, right? And so kind of, you know, what, what I recommend people do is keep track of things on a, you know, 
semi-annual or you know quarterly or semi-annual or annual basis you know you should sort of look at your net worth and your portfolio value you know and importantly your asset allocation right see where that is on a on a regular basis but for the most part you don't need to make you know frequent moves and and if you're thinking about doing that um just remember the more often you trade um on average the, the worse your performance will be so i think if you have the ability to kind of lock that off and put it away and not think about it that's really the best investment advice weren't, weren't the returns best in that study for folks who had died and not logged <laughs> yeah. in at all <laughs> was, right. something like that yeah um to, to, to kind of emphasize your point there what one so so we just said it, it going back a few minutes here if I believe that inflation is going to stop, that asset prices are going to come screaming down and interest rates are going to rise, right? So that makes none of these investments, debt, um, uh, fixed, fixed income debt, uh, stocks or real estate, for example, attractive to me, right? And then I go to cash, right? And that, that, make, that would make sense if I believe those, that, that that is the, 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 the forecast for the next couple of years. Let, let's take another let's take another assessment though and say, what if I believe that inflation is likely to loom for some period of time and the Fed is unlikely to get it under control um, to a large degree, right? Well, in that case, wouldn't the ideal bet be to borrow money on that front because I'm going to be borrowing money today at uh, at one interest rate that's going to increase later and I believe that I'll be able to pay it back with dollars that are cheaper in three, four, five years than they are today, right? So would that would that suggest if I believe that that I should not be paying down any of my debt and I should be in fact borrowing more against assets that I think will have inflation resistant income streams, um, for example, right? And like I don't want to get danger. I'm not going to do this in my own portfolio. I'm continuing to buy. I'm buying another rental property this year. Like I am with my stock portfolio, I just continue to apply more assets into those as I generate surplus with this. But wouldn't the couldn't you also take the ex- extreme opposite opinion? And say if I believe that, then the best thing I can do is go on a huge shopping spree and borrow as much as I possibly can against real estate because I'm going to be paying that back with cheaper dollars downstream. What, what's your what's your thought process on that? Yeah, so in a in an inflationary environment, you know, really leveraged income producing real estate is one of the best assets out there. Um, and if you think about you know inflation, who does inflation hurt? Right. Well, inflation hurts people who you know don't have kind of labor income and are living on a, a fixed um, you know they're, they're fixed assets. And so you know inflation is very bad for them because their their returns are not keeping up with inflation. Who does inf- you know, so those are primarily people who are saving and investing. Who does inflation hurt or who does inflation help the most is the borrowers, right? And kind of primary amongst that group is the U.S. government as one of the largest borrowers that's out there. Um, well, inflation's really good if you're issuing trillions of dollars in debt, right? You can pay it back with uh, with dollars in the future, which are worth less. So, you know, investors, um, you know, if, if they think there's going to be continued inflation, uh, which is certainly a, a plausible outcome, um, then one of the best things to do is, yeah, you know, lock in a, a lower long-term fixed rate mortgage. Um, and even at 5%, you know, that's still relatively low compared to what future inflation might be. Um, real estate, I think, you know, the, the best way to look at inflation in real estate and real estate appreciation is, you know, in the long run, uh, real estate should... Um, the value of real estate should grow along with the inflation rate, right? So that, that's sort of a, a more or less one-for-one pass-through. Uh, if inflation goes up 8%, we might expect real estate to go up 8%, you know, and, and that's because you expect rents to go up 8%, right? Um, and, you know, 
shelter, right, or, or you know, rents or own implied rents, that's about 30% of CPI. So, you know, that is the single largest component of CPI. When we say inflation's up, you know, a big part of what we're saying is, yeah, well, you know, rents are up. Um, that's that's a big portion of it. So, you know, investing in real estate, you get that inflation protection, right? It's number one. So you, you'll have those rents rise along with inflation over the longer run. Um, and so you, you're less concerned about inflation. And then number two, that inflation, you know, if you're to take out a mortgage, that inflation is going to eat away the value of that that debt that you have, right? And so that's a big reason why I think we've seen such a huge surge in the housing market over the last year and a half is with the specter of rising inflation, people are sort of trying to get ahead of the curve on that and, and push those prices up even faster than the inflation rate. Um, you know, so that, that, that said, I think the housing market should probably just more or less keep up with inflation going forwards, um, which is a good thing, right? You know, that, that's, that's probably all, all you need to ask for. Um, and then if you're able to, um, you know, pay back your loan with dollars worth less in the future, um, that's in a higher inflationary environment, certainly one of the most attractive options that's out there. Yeah, what what I believe is going to happen, just to kind of put a put a bow on this, and you know, I think about it is, is I believe inflation is likely to to stay at a at a higher at a relatively higher rate. I believe interest rates are likely to rise. I believe that that rising interest rates um, um, are going to mute the growth of the stock market and real estate. But I believe that uh, for the first time in ten years, we already see, we're already seeing this this year rents are going to start rising much faster than home price appreciation um, over ac- across the country. And so to me, that's where, you know, I continue to have more assets in real estate than stocks, um, but I'm leveraged in there um, with, that, with that as a bet. And then I have the stock market. I have my cash position. Um, I have a larger cash position and I split that cash position across both cash and gold, um, because I believe that gold will help will, will hold its value a little better in an inflationary environment than dollars will. But I consider that those my currencies, for example. Um, and then you know, obviously, I have I uh, uh, have some other things going on, like bigger pockets as a business that I participate in ownership with, and then um, the you know a couple other things like private investments. But that that's what I believe in what I'm doing. Um, and I believe that those are the right calls over a very long period of time, right? Things would have to change foundationally about the economy for me to believe something different, for example. Yeah. So, right. So starting with that rents, you know, rents should, I think, outpace housing prices because housing prices have outpaced rent by such a large extent, you know, over the last year. So rents will have to catch up you know, and, and so we'll, we'll see that happen. Um, inflation, you know, I'll, I'll say the market's expectation is, is that it'll settle back down to a manageable level. So probably higher than the 2% we've become accustomed to, but certainly below. And it depends on what you look at, right? So if you looked at kind of the core CPI, right? So you're taking out food and energy, which are kind of very volatile. Um, that's sitting at 6.5%. And I agree with that. I don't I don't think inflation is going to loom at like 10% a year for a long period of time, right? So just higher than 2%, but not 9%. Well, so it's interesting if you look at kind of what's been causing inflation, right? And so there's really three primary things that have, have led to this inflation environment we're in right now, okay? And it's, you know, number one, so low interest rates. And I think that gets kind of a, a lot of the blame in, in today's discussion. Um, so, you know, very low interest rate policy from the Federal Reserve. Um, number two is supply chain shortages. And so, you know, that's that's certainly been part of the story, particularly in, you know, semiconductors, or I think timber was a big example of that earlier on, um, you know, that, that we've got shortages in, in the supply market. Um, number three is is fiscal policy. Okay. And I think it's actually that third one, which has been the, the biggest culprit 
in terms of inflation. Um, and there's a, a paper that the uh, San Francisco Federal Reserve published not too long ago, and, and they they sort of tried to back out these numbers and um, sort of put forth that three percent of the inflation surge that we're seeing has been caused by um, you know the the CARES Act and the American Recovery Plan, right? So those two big fiscal payments that we saw, um, and that they've led to a uh, you know a ten percent for the first one and fifteen percent for the second increase in um, in personal consumption, right? That is money that we're putting directly into people's pockets to go out and spend, and that's been responsible for you know roughly three percent of the inflationary surge that we've seen. Um, so you know that that's the uh, the fiscal spending. Um, you know, now supply chain management is is another thing that may be solved more quickly or, or not. That may be more ongoing. Um, and then we got the the federal poli- federal interest rate policy starting to come up. So you know, when we look at those causes of inflation, um, you you, you want to ask to think about inflation going forwards. How are those changing, right? And so you know, the the fiscal policy so it does depend a lot on what Congress you know decides to pass and what we as voters uh, you know sort of are, are going to be willing to accept. Um, I don't think we'll see the same size of fiscal spending, you know, going forward as what we've seen, you know, as, as a result of the, the pandemic spending. So, you know, and this is sort of the Federal Reserve's policy when they when they talked about inflation being transitory, that this is the things they were looking at. They were saying, well, it's largely fiscal spending, and that's going to get dialed back. And it's the supply chain issues, and that's going to get rectified. And so once those things kind of get back to normal, then inflation should take care of itself. Right. So this, this is their story 12 months ago. Um, and, you know, that's proved to not entirely be the case that and, and it mostly that, you know, these things haven't unwound as quickly. So they're starting to raise interest rates to do what they can to combat inflation. Um, so I think, you know, the, the low interest rate policy hasn't been a big driver of inflation. You know, if you look at it, we've had the, the Fed funds rate, you know, at zero, close to zero for the better part of 15 years. Right. Now, how much inflation do we have from 2009 through 2018? You know, it, it wasn't large, you know, it wasn't much. So if it's low interest rates that are causing inflation, why didn't it happen earlier? Well, well, we had a great discussion with Tom Honig on this, uh, former president of the Kansas City Fed, uh, Fed, Fed uh, uh, and, and, and that I think he had a great discussion where the inflation, you know, there's two types of inflation, according to him, right, where you've got asset inflation, and you've got CPI inflation, right? And CPI does not measure asset inflation. And when you reduce interest rates, um, and you allow that, 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 uh, that kind of borrowing to take place, um, or that, that cheap money, that what that did is that inflated the asset prices of homes, um, real estate, stocks, private equity investments, those types of things. And that that has been a major driver of the phenomenal returns we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, well, 10, 10, 12 years um, in in a lot of those asset classes. And that is kind of the the story of the inflation there. And that's, you know, there's that, tri- you know, trickle down uh, theory where the, now that, that to, to keep driving those returns, you've, that's kind of beginning to flow downstream. And so you wonder if there's longer term levers um, as a result of that policy that will take some time to unwind um, to some degree. Yeah, that, that's right. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier with kind of as interest rates have come down, you know, the, the Fed's trying to encourage people to move out on the risk curve and, you know, take money out of out of bonds and into stocks, into real estate, into the other alternative asset classes. So as, you know, Bond yields have come down. We've seen dividend yields come down. We've seen cap rates come down, and that that is asset price inflation. So you know the, the big question now is is that reversing as interest rates come up? You know, are we going to see this this asset price decline as a result of interest rate policy? And essentially, you know, in order for that to happen, that means people are going to allocate out of those other assets and back into fixed income, 
right? You got to say, oh, well, now that bond yields are 3%, 4%, I'm happy to hold them again, right? And so it, it remains to be seen how eager people will be to, to jump into the fixed income market, you know, particularly with inflation. So, you know, the inflation is, is the big question. If inflation settles back into 2 to 3%, you can earn 5 to 6% on interest rates. Um, that's not bad. And I think you probably will see a, a large scale reallocation back into the fixed income markets. And as a result, you'll see dividend yields on equities come back up. You'll see you know, cap rates in, in real estate head up a little bit. Um, so that's that's the risk. And you know, that's, that's the view on if you want to you know, keep a lot of cash on hand, you know, you're, you're sort of playing that angle of it, right? That interest rates will come up. You'll see asset prices come down. I'll get bargains in the future. And, and inflation won't be too bad. So Shane, before we wrap up, how, how, how would Mindy and I um, do in your class? Would we, would we, how would we, would, would we be on track for an A, a B, a C? How, how would we do? Uh, as one of your students here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to final exam tomorrow, in fact, for one of my classes. So you're, you're welcome to come sit in and take it and, and I'll, I'll see how you do. I'll give you a grade. <laughs> Maybe we no. will. So be careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have been out of school for a long time on purpose. Scott, you're welcome to though. Go now. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this has been a phenomenal uh, discussion. I think I think you know at the end of the day we've got a, we've had a really good discussion. You're incredibly well informed and know know this market and 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 all these concepts um, really really well. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we just don't know what what things are going to happen on a go forward basis. It's all a matter of what you believe and what your plan is. I love that. I think that's the big thing is have a plan and know know what execution or good execution of it looks like. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll continue to have lots of of good conversations about. Um, this topic and, and think it through because um, there's, yeah. you know, who knows who's going to be right or what, what the answer, what the outcome is going to be in a few years um, across these asset classes. And in that regard, I think, you know, people like to talk about returns and kind of what, what asset class or opportunity will give me the best return. Um, it's a very obvious number that, that people like to think about. Um, I think, but as you're saying, like, it's really just so uncertain and it's very difficult to predict. Um, and I think most people are better served by not thinking so much about returns and thinking a lot more about risk risk management, you know, sort of planning for different outcomes, you know, what might happen in this scenario, what might happen in that scenario, how can I make decisions that will, you know, leave me, you know, well enough off, uh, regardless of what happens in the future. And, you know, that that's, I mean, diversification is a big part of that, right? But trying to assess that from a risk management standpoint, rather than a, which asset class will give me the best return framework. Well, Shane, where can people find out more about you? Um, yeah, so I've got a LinkedIn account is, is probably the primary place. I, I'm not very active on social media um, or uh, my, my webpage at the USC Business School. Absolutely. You can find those at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow309. So Shane, thank you so much for the, the wonderful discussion today across a wide ranging um, variety of subjects, but in particular, bringing your expertise on bonds and fixed income, which is something we, um, I think, have a lot to learn about, Mindy and I, um, on the Money Show here. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thank you, Shane, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Scott, that was Shane Shepard, and that was an awesome episode. What did you think of the show? I, I thought it was great. I think it was a, a good chance to learn more about fixed income and 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 investing in bonds. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, they're still not for me right now. They're, you know, the set of assumptions that I have to believe long term about bonds don't work for my, my portfolio. Um, so I think it was reaffirming to a certain extent um, for that, but I can see where where and when they will have a use case in my portfolio. And you know that opinion will revise if, for example, yields 
get really high, like in the 10, you know, eight to 10 to 12, 15% range. And it looks like there will be a period where yields will begin declining long-term. That would be a great time to be a lender on a fixed rate loan of 10, 12, 15%. Um, if you could get, if, if that circumstance could happen and inflation is going to come down. So there could well be a time when bonds become a major part of my portfolio, um, but it would just be something that I'd have to believe about the future, and I don't currently believe that. I agree. Bonds, after having the conversation, I did go in with an open mind. I wanted to hear about the bonds. I feel like I understand them more after speaking with Shane, but I still agree with you. They're not part of my investment plan. I think they have a great purpose for a lot of people. I'm just not in the position right now where I want to be investing in bonds. Um, and again, that might change in the future. I'm sure it will change in the future as I get a lot older. But right now, I still want to be generating wealth. So I'm in different asset classes. Now, the the, the inflation, the I-bonds... Those make sense. I probably will put a put the ten thousand dollars per year into the I bonds based on this discussion per person. Um, because why park it in cash, right? When I can get a nine point six two percent yield, right? So, and then if there's a deflationary event, the yields go to zero. It's the same as having cash in, in that particular case. So, so it seems like there is a good use case for that, um, and it could be valuable for somebody who is looking for a safe place um, to get some yield in the short run. Yes, and that is per person. So you and your wife could each have $10,000 in I-bonds. Awesome. Well, it sounds like I owe you $962 worth of beers Okay. Um, for that tip. Oh, I love that. Okay, let me see if I can get you some more tips then. For those tips. Oh, is that a pun? All right, should we get out of here, Mindy? <laughs> yes, we should, because <laughs> I'll take credit for the pun, but it wasn't a pun. Disclosure tips are separate from I-bonds, so don't, don't, you know, we're not completing the two, but yeah. From episode 309 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying thanks for the chat, cat. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.